This is Live from Ukraine, a conversation with Ukrainian voices taped live on Twitter Spaces. To join future audiences, follow me at Benjamin Wittes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Live from Ukraine. Uh, I'm Benjamin Wittes. I'm not in Ukraine. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined today uh, by Katerina Patsky, who I believe is also not in Ukraine. Where are you joining us from, Kat? I'm currently in Palo Alto, California, back at Stanford, just for a few days. Excellent. And um, so for those of you who don't know, Kat is, uh, uh, among other things, and we will get to some of those other things in a moment, the author of a piece published on Lawfare uh, this afternoon uh, about Wikipedia wars related to Ukraine. Uh, so uh, let's start, uh, Kat, with the, um, we're going to come to your story in a moment, but let's start with the article. What, uh, uh, it, it starts with a remarkable anecdote that took place uh, very recently. Tell us about the evening that uh, uh, you opened the article with. So I've been, I've had a bit of a battle with Wikipedia for a few years now because I've noticed that a lot of Ukrainian cultural figures, a lot of Ukrainians in general, have had their pages modified to say that they're Russian or have had other aspects of their identities erased. And I know that this has been happening for a while now, but my most recent interaction was with Kazimir Malevich's page, who is one of the most famous avant-garde artists in the I had made a post on my organization, Shadows Project, on Instagram. We made a post about Malevich explaining his Ukrainian identity and explaining that he was a Ukrainian, not a Russian artist. And one of our followers DM'd us saying, hey, I loved your post. I agreed with everything you said, but I looked him up and on Wikipedia it says he's Russian. Now, I knew that his Wikipedia page had said he was Russian because it's something that I've tried to get them to fix in the past. But I went back to check um, once, once more and to kind of look over it and sigh to myself. And as I was on the page, I saw this back and forth unfolding right in front of my eyes because I went to check his page and it said that he was Russian. A few minutes later, I went back for good measure, refreshed, and all of a sudden it said he was Ukrainian. A few minutes later, same thing, refresh, it was Russian. And so I started watching this battle unfold in real time as two different sets of edit wars were going on to edit his identity back and forth. And that was interesting to me because... I, I had known his page had been Russian for a while now, but I didn't realize that there were actually people trying to edit it as Ukrainian that had been getting shot down. So I started digging through the edit history and I see this back and forth, this very intense back and forth, not only on Malevich's page, but on a lot of different cultural figures page. And essentially that's what I talk about in the article about doing a deep dive on all of these cultural figures that have had their Wikipedia um, pages subject to these edit wars. And it's fascinating what you find, especially when you find the comments by the editors that they leave when they make an edit, some of them so blatantly um, spewing pop propaganda in the edit history. And I wanted to do a deep exit of this and especially cite the figures that are consistently targeted so that people can be aware of this because I reached out to Wikipedia and I asked them to lock the pages for these cultural figures because now more than ever, this is a hotbed for misinformation. And I asked them to maybe lock these pages so that these edit wars can't happen and they haven't done this yet as far as I know, they reached out back to me and said they would look into it, but there hasn't been a proper um, statement put out and a recognition of what's happening on Wikipedia. So I think it's very important. So there's a lot packed into there, and I mm -hmm. want 
unpack it uh, bit by bit. But before we do, uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about you. Uh, you were on the Lawfare podcast uh, recently, so some people have a sense of you uh, who were here. Um, but uh, give us a little introduction to yourself. Who were you before the war started? And uh, uh, what were you uh, and, and how did your life change uh, after February 24th? Well, before February 24th, I was a regular Ukrainian, a student at Stanford University, and I was the co-founder of Shadows Project. Me and my two friends co-founded it over a year and a half ago. And before the war, the Shadows Project was a cultural organization that worked on preserving and protecting Ukrainian culture. Now, working on the Shadows Project for the last year and a half, and especially in the lead up to the war, was fascinating because we had understood the importance of protecting Ukrainian culture, and we had understood the struggle for Ukrainians' ID from even before the war started. And we always knew that there was this historical battle going on through Kremlin narratives for centuries, and that each time the Kremlin spews misinformation about Ukraine's historical origins, that's setting the grounds for a real attack. And so we had been working on shadows for a year and a half, even before the war started, trying to um, give Ukraine autonomous historical narrative to strengthen our identity and to dispel the misinformation about the blurring of the lines between Russia and Ukraine. And on February 24th, we were kind of proven right in the worst possible when Putin declared war, but not only declared war, specifically cited these historical misconceptions when he said Ukraine was created by Lenin, Ukraine is a fake nation. And these historical myths were something that we had been working on um, disputing on shadows for over a year now. And now, since the war started and it's, the threat is more real and more prevalent than ever, it really changed all of our lives and our mission at Shadows because we understood now that the things we've been doing for a year are really coming out in tangible, tangible ways. So since the war began, we've just upped our ante and we've been working even harder to try and do deep dives into Wikipedia to see where Ukrainian culture is being challenged, where we can strengthen our historical narrative and also in a more tangible way than working alongside museums and cultural heritage institutions in Ukraine to ensure that they have the equipment necessary to protect our cultural heritage and proof of our identity and existence for centuries. Yeah, so I want to, I don't want to gloss over your activities with the mm -hmm. museum preservation, uh, 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 but I'm going to refer people to the episode that you and I did of the Lawfare mm -hmm. podcast for that so that we can focus on the Wikipedia uh, stuff, but for just so that we, we don't ignore it entirely, because I, I, I do think it's super important. Uh, give us the, the five minute or three minute overview. You picked up, left Stanford, went to, to Poland and have been shuttling back and forth between Poland and uh, Lviv since. Mm -hmm. Doing what? What's what has been sort of Shadows Project's operational activity since the beginning of the war? Right when the war began, as a cultural institution, Shadows had a very interesting role because um, Ukrainian civil society was coming together to defend every aspect of Ukraine. And our job as a cultural institution was to take care of our cultural heritage. And so we had already been active for a year and a half. We were very deeply connected in the Ukrainian cultural community. We've worked with a lot of Ukrainian museums in the past. So it seemed um, it seemed like the obvious thing to do for Shadows to reach out to the museums we had worked with in the past and check in with them and see how they were doing during the war effort. And the responses we got 
from the museums we had worked with was that they were underfunded and they didn't have enough critical protective equipment to defend the art, the artifacts, and our heritage. And so we stepped up as a cultural to try and fill those gaps where cultural institutions are not getting what they need. So at Stanford, about a week after the war started, went to Poland and have been going back and forth delivering this equipment. We've partnered with several institutions in the U.S. to deliver over $27,000 worth of equipment so far, but we're still we're still going. And we've delivered armored fireproof cabinets, blankets, fireproof blankets, electricity generators, and all of this kind of heavy equipment to ensure museums can properly store their art and protect it in the worst possible scenario. And tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, you're Ukrainian, uh, uh, but you've lived in the States for a while. Uh, you'd never know you were Ukrainian from your accent. What's, uh, what, what's, what's the Katerina Bukatsky story? I am... Ukrainian. My father's Ukrainian. My mother's actually Brazilian, but I was raised in Kiev. My dad's family's from Odessa, so we're a very Odessan family. And I grew up in Kiev, uh, spending a lot of time with my family in Odessa as well. Both of those cities, my heart. And I, in 2013, the Revolution of Dignity happened in Kiev. We were present for that. 13-year-old, I attended those protests, and that really shaped my identity and shaped my future, what I what I saw my future being as a Ukrainian. And we unfortunately had to leave Ukraine shortly after in the summer of 2014, after the annexation of Crimea and the occupation of Donbass. And I've been living in the U.S. since 2014, but going back to Ukraine almost every summer and doing a lot of work there since. And I hope to move back permanently when I graduate in just two years. All right. So let's go back to Wikipedia. Um, uh, I want to start by referring the listeners to the article for the specific details of the specific fights, because those are actually hard to communicate uh, on uh, in audio form. You, they're kind of visual to see the way these entries have been changed. But suffice it to say, and I'll, I'll let you characterize it, it seems like there is a systematic ongoing effort to erase Ukraine and U the Ukrainianness of significant mm -hmm. cultural figures from Wikipedia. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that you, the persistence of it is really what makes you understand how systematic this is. This isn't someone that came across a page, wanted to make an edit, and then left it at that. I mean, th these are people monitoring these pages that are consistently, minute by minute, checking and making sure to revert any edits if anyone adds in Ukrainianness to these figures. So these pages are being being definitely monitored, and it, also the wide scale of the misinformation operation shows you that these they have they surely have some sort of list of Ukrainian cultural figures and people are looking at this list and check pages every day, minute by minute, and making sure to shut down any efforts if people want to include Ukrainian identity on the pages. And what do we know about who is organizing this effort? I mean, Wikipedia is, you can do almost anything pretty anonymously. Mm -hmm. um, it does have the feel of an information operation as somebody... Mm -hmm spends a lot of time with information operations. Do we know that, do we know anything about who's behind this? So we cannot say, I cannot say for sure that this is tied to any official Russian government operations. What I can say is 
in the users that I've been tracking, it seems as though um, Wikipedia and other editors on Wikipedia have been playing whack-a-mole with these accounts because you have an account that is made just a few days ago to edit this particular page. And then pretty quickly, it starts getting flagged because people see the outrageous comments that they're leaving on Ukrainian pages and they get flagged for misinformation. Usually the account gets taken down, but the edits stay up. And then you'll see a few days later, another more an account that was made just a few days ago pop up, do the same thing on another page, and they're very persistent. And so a lot of these users, you actually can't find a lot of history on because once you click on them, most of the time, by the time that you look through the edit history and find the user that did that, their account has already been removed. So you really can't see anything, but the edits stay up. And so it, it makes it very hard to track anything. And especially because obviously all the usernames and things like that are anonymous. But it's fair to say, if we, if we can't say this is a Russian information operation, we can certainly say it is an information operation that is consistent with current Russian mm-hmm. uh, policies and attitudes toward Ukraine and its culture. Absolutely. because And this is something that the edits that they have been making on Wikipedia have been echoing Kremlin lines even before the war started, which again, points to this idea that this is something that has been in the works, the erasure of Ukrainian culture and the attack on Ukraine for much longer than just February 24th. And the similarity between the edit history on Wikipedia and the direct quotes from Putin makes it kind of almost impossible to separate the two, that whether or not this is affiliated with the Russian government, it's certainly propagating Russian government lines. So one of the examples that I'll cite quickly, but you can read the rest on the article, is um, in an edit comment in 2020, someone erased a mention of Ukraine and said, delete fake news, the USSR created Ukraine, which is almost you know exactly what Putin is saying about the USSR having created Ukraine, Lenin being the architect of Ukraine. And so these are narratives that have been brewing since even 2020 in the edit history. And it's only coming to the public eye now with Putin's addresses. But in Russia, these narratives have been brewing. I thought the most interesting edit, meant, uh, edit comment um, was, and I, it's been a week since I've, I edited this piece, so forgive me if I, if I get it um, I get the details of it wrong, but there's a reference to, there's a Ukrainian spelling of somebody's name mm-hmm. yes. and it is removed with a comment that the Ukrainian spelling is duplicative because the language doesn't exist. Yeah. So that's, that's another interesting one on one of the artist pages where, you know, on Wikipedia, usually you'll have the English spelling and then whatever relevant spellings, um, in the language that's relevant to that page. And in this particular page, there was the spelling of the man's name in English, this is David Burluk, and then they had it in Russian, and then they had it in Ukrainian. And the editor removed the Ukrainian spelling and said, there's no point in having a Russian and a Ukrainian spelling because there's no point in pretending Ukraine is a, Ukrainian is a unique language. And this was in, um, this was actually recently. So this was as while the war was happening. And so again, these narratives about Ukrainian and Russian being the same language and this idea that the editor said that there's no point in pretending Ukraine is distinct. Um, that feels also very targeted and very hateful in a way. And I think that what you can see in the comments on Wikipedia that you might not be able to see in official polished statements is really the the raw emotions of the people leaving these comments saying, why are you pretending that this is a different language or this is fake news, delete this. And you can see a lot of the raw emotions behind what's happening um, on the public sphere a little bit in the private Wikipedia sphere behind these comments. So 
I struggle with this. I know the answer to this question, but I really, I don't know it emotionally. It doesn't resonate for me. And I, I want you to, I think this is probably true of a lot of people, and I want you to walk us through it like we're kindergartners. Mm-hmm. Why is it worth, in from a Russian point of view, investing energy in making sure Milevich is characterized as Russian, not Ukrainian, wiping out Ukrainian language spellings of people's names in Ukraine in in Wikipedia. Why are these cultural wars important? Uh, from an American point of view, it, it it's it, it seems almost farcical. And mm-hmm. you know, like like the analogy would be if a if the United States government or some proxies for it started trying to erase references to Canadian culture. Um, uh, on uh, on Wikipedia, no one would think to do that. There's no, you know, w- why do these uh, these cultural battles matter to the Russians to engage in? Uh, we'll come to why it matters to you to defend them in a moment. But like, what? Why is this a good expenditure of Russian energy? I mean, first we have to understand that this information campaign, again, is not something that happened that's recently, not even just in the few months, but in the few years. Information has always been a weapon of the Kremlin since centuries ago, especially against Ukraine. And the reason that they expend so much energy is because the existence of a separate, thriving Ukrainian national identity historically poses a poses a problem for Russian elites, because when Russians are attempting to construct a national identity, they often do it off the backs of their colonies. So the very beginning of the Russian nation um, that they, they like to talk about is that the Russian nation came from the great Kyrus, the Kievan Rus empire. And of course, the Kievan Rus is in, was based out of Ukraine's capital. And Ukraine and also has a historical... Just, just for people who don't have any Slavic language background, the Rus in the Kiev, Kevin Rus is the same root as the root in Russia. So this is, it's so organic to the Russian conception of, uh, the, the, literally the word is the same. Yeah. So again, they, they have constructed a lot of their national identity off of their colonies, saying that they, they came from the Kievan Rus. And a lot of the things that Russians pride themselves on are actually coming from their colonies because for so long Russia had these territories under control that they were able to co-opt whatever parts of their culture that they wanted to. For example, there's a big battle over borscht, over whether it's a Ukrainian dish or a Russian dish because it was a Ukrainian dish it's known as Russia's national soup. And so a lot of Russia's identity has been based off of the backs of its colonies. And Russia's forced expansionism has, for most of its history, managed to keep these lands of historical origins under its control. And so it's been able to perpetuate this national myth without necessarily having their identity challenged. And Russia has become very accustomed to thinking of itself as an imperial power. And so now when you think about Ukraine and all of the other former Russian colonies as independent, what does that mean for Russia's identity? What does it mean? Who are Russians if the very city that they claim they come from is a Ukrainian city? And we see now more than ever what it means for Russia. And it means that Russia is willing to take any means to reclaim this territory in order to keep its identity and its historical narrative intact. And to answer your question more specifically about specific artists like Malevich and why it's so important for them, for people to think of them as Russian is because 
all of these things are culture, art, musicians, writers. These are the things that shape people's perceptions of a nation. That's it's cultural diplomacy. And when people think of Malevich, people think Paul Ings. They think, wow, he's one of the best avant-garde artists in the world and historically one of the best avant-garde artists. And when they can say, wow, he came from Russia, that improves Russia's global image, that improves Russia's prestige, Russia's standing. And they they need that. They want that. Any any nation wants its culture to be perceived, to be respected, to be understood. And that's why you find so many of these iconic Ukrainian cultural figures being co-opted to be Russian instead, because the the more that people associate them with Ukraine, the more that Ukraine gets this global platform, gets a global voice, the more that people see Ukraine as its own country with an interesting culture, with its own figures, and the more it challenges not only Russia's identity, but you know, Russia wants that prestige for itself. That's the whole basis of being an imperial power. So I agree with everything you just said. And I think you've, but I want to throw out an additional mm-hmm. hypothesis, which is that there are certain Russian strategic objectives um, that are very hard to justify um, if Ukraine exists. Yes. So Crimea is a is a very good example of this. There are good geostrategic reasons why Russia wants control of Crimea. It's, they're not good enough to justify its seizure, but um, but one can certainly understand why Moscow wants control of Crimea. And so if you can argue uh, that artists from Crimea are Russian um, mm-hmm. or that, you know, uh, that, you know, Odessa is a traditional Russian city, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then it, it, it allows for the, it, it makes it much easier to make claims that are fundamentally territorial and geostrategic in nature and couch them in, ter- in, in cultural terms. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why Again, back to my, my work at Shadows, the reason that for the past year and a half, even before the military invasion started, why we were so concerned with Russia co-opting Ukraine's culture and erasing Ukraine's history is because we understood exactly that, which is when you can blur these lines, these historical lines, these cultural lines, it makes it so much easier for you to step in and say, we are the same people, we are a brotherly nation, we share these artists, we share these figures, or not not even share, but you know, yours, you used to be a part of us. It makes it so much easier to justify a military and territorial conquest, not only even internally, but globally. And that's why I think now for this invasion, we're getting so much attention and the world seems to be on Ukraine's side. But that wasn't necessarily the case in 2014. And I think that in 2014 is a key example of the success of a Russian information and cultural distortion campaign, because when the annexation of Crimea happened in 2014, the conversation did not look looks today. A lot of people had confusion about whether or not Crimea was actually Ukraine. And a lot of the West had confusion about, you know, maybe maybe he has a point there. Maybe there's this historical claim. And so when he blurs these lines, it makes it so much easier to um, it makes it so much easier to do what he's doing because a lot of people won't be able to challenge it and won't be able to understand it. Because if, when you think of Ukraine, if you can't think of Ukraine's artists and Ukraine's figures and Ukraine's important people, then it makes it very hard for you to understand what Ukraine is and why you should defend it, which is such a campaign today and, and has been 
at least on Shadow's behalf for the past year and a half, to recognize that for people to understand that Ukraine is culturally sovereign and that it has its own history so that people can be willing to defend it and people can be aware of what's happening when Russia tries to erase it. Okay, we're going to go to audience questions uh, now. Again, I'm going to be a little bit picky about uh, who I select for questions for trolling-related reasons. Um, also, I want to insist in a way that I haven't in the past Please uh, do formulate your question in the form of a question. I'm much more interested in questions for Kat than I am in monologues or uh, lengthy comments. Uh, Ev, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, you, you uh, earlier you talked about um, the revolution of dignity, and uh, you said that you were going to protest, and it was... Um, a really important moment for you uh, at that time. Could you talk a little bit more about that and say how um, it influenced maybe the work you are doing now? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the revolution of dignity was a defining moment for a lot of Ukrainians and was this identity building moment for, for most of us that were there at the time. And I remember I was 13, actually, for those of you familiar with the events, Revolution of Dignity, the Million Man March, which was the massive protests that came out after the first beatings of protesters that happened on my 13th birthday. So actually it was even, even on a more personal level for me for that to have happened on my 13th birthday was a big awakening in my identity because I was coming into this new year, 13 years old, trying to understand what it meant to be a teenager to finally be in, um, in my teen years. And my, and my mom, I remember had always made these jokes that she was dreading that I was turning 13 because she said, 13's are the worst year because teenagers are so rebellious and they like to revolt against authority and they're going to be such trouble. And I always laugh at it looking back because quite literally when I turned 13, that's exactly what we did. We went to rebel, we revolted against authority on massive scale. And for me, for that to coincide with a personal awakening, our national awakening as well, really shaped me as a person because the values that I learned on my Don and the values that I learned on the Revolution of Dignity, I internalized as I almost felt as though the country was turning 13 with me and stepping into this new identity. And I walked away with it understanding that people have a voice, that what people do matters. I think I walked away from it incredibly empowered that even me as a 13-year-old, I felt swept up in this movement and I could be there and we were making a difference and we were making positive change. And I understood that we matter, that our voices mattered, that the individual can be a part of something so much bigger than themselves. I understood what it meant to fight for freedom. I understood what it meant to, to see people die for freedom and the sacrifices that my countrymen made um, in February during the Revolution of Dignity. I mean, that stuck with me because as a 13-year-old, seeing that and seeing the lengths that people are willing to go in order to make their lives better and the lengths that people are willing to go to ensure that their country and their society is built in the way they want it to be built, that I think forever changed my outlook on life. And so I was, I was raised on those principles. And I think a lot of us, especially my generation, we were raised on those principles. And you see that coming into full effect today when people talk about this Ukrainian spirit during the war and how, how much Ukrainians are fighters. And I think that I, I saw that firsthand in 2013. And for the past eight years, it's only been building. And as we, as the generation of people that grew up on the revolution of dignity are now becoming young, young adults, we're kind of being understanding even more what freedom means to us and how far we're willing to go for it. We have a question from Battle Moose. The floor is yours, sir. Or thank you, thank you very much, uh, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, allow me to speak. Um, 
I, 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 I there, there's been many salient points made uh, thus far, and I agree with the uh, the whole um, lack of culture that uh, Russia may or may not have. And I'm I'm actually half Ukrainian, half Polish, so not only can I uh, you know make my food out of potatoes, I can make my booze out of potatoes as well. So that being said, uh, do you think that the uh, the current situation with the population in Russia is that like a uh, a populist Stockholm syndrome, or is is have they just completely succumbed to social apathy? I I think that this is a good question, and it's something I spoke about on my Twitter a few months ago because I had an interaction with a Russian while I was in Europe for the first time since the war began, and I think that again not to sound repetitive, but a lot of this is historical. And for you to understand the full scale and the context, you really do have to go back centuries. And when you look at Russian history, they've never lived in a true democracy. It's always been authoritarian regimes and there's been a true democratic revolution in Russia. And I posted this a while ago and someone argued that the Bolshevik revolution was a true democratic revolution, which I disagree with, but I won't get into that. But my stance is that there's never been a true democratic uprising that's been successful in Russia. And at some point, you really have to why that is. And at some point, you have to stop making excuses for oppressive leaders that say, oh, Russia's been living under oppression. The Russian people have living under autocracies. At some point, you really have to ask yourself, why have they put up with this for so long? At some point, you have to ask yourself, is it something in the Russian mindset, this apathy that, that, that you mentioned in your question? And I, I think it has to be because I can't think of another nation that has lived under such heavy authoritarian regimes for so long without ever really having the spark for democratic revolution. And when I talked with the Russian a few weeks ago, or maybe a month ago, um, I met them in Europe and we chatted briefly. And I essentially said, you know, how how can you let this be happening? And he said, well, you know, no no one really no one really likes this war. No one really wants this war in Russia, but you can't really do much about it. Um, maybe the oligarchs will start revolting. And that is such a distinct difference between Ukrainian and Russian culture, whereas Russians don't understand the power of the populace and they don't understand the power they hold as citizens and the power that they hold as people. I think that even in in Ukraine, we understood that even when we were fighting against an entire regime, when we were fighting against riot police, when we were fighting against the Ukrainian government when we wanted to overthrow them in 2013, we understood that if this is something that we all want and we all band together, we can make it happen. And I don't think that there's this understanding in Russia. I think that a lot of Russians say, oh, no one wants this war, but they don't make that jump between, you know, if no one wants it and you're all on the same page, then doesn't that mean you have a lot of power together to do something about it? I don't think that people really see themselves as a part of something greater and can understand their role as a driver of a movement like this, which is why you see a lot of maybe individual Russians claiming that they don't want this war, but not enough collective action. And it's a large scale social apathy and a, a, a fundamental misunderstanding of the power of the people. And I think social is, is a great way to describe it. So I want to like when when people make similar cultural arguments about democracy in the Arab world, they get a very, very hard pushback that this is uh, a sort of cultural essentialism. Sometimes people get accused of racism. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm interested in, like, I, I, I have a, I've ever 
it's a really interesting question why the Russian people have been so amenable to authoritarianism for so long. But I, I do wonder if, if a sort of cultural essentialism about it is the right way to think about it, rather than say it's a huge, huge landmass that the only way to govern successfully has been with a extremely powerful state. And that extremely powerful state uh, becomes itself a, a mechanism of tyranny. Um, is it something that lives in the Russian soul or is it something that inheres in the nature of governing a space that big? I think it goes both ways. I can understand your argument. And I think that when you think about political reasons, there's a lot of political reasons why Russia has been authoritarian for so long. As you said, the large landmass, um, a lot of ethnic minorities make it hard um, to have a kind of more um, involved society in a way because there's a lot of differences and there's a lot of political reasons why people claim that Russia has been authoritarian. And I agree with a lot of them, but that doesn't necessarily answer the reason as to why the populace has been willing to live with that for so long. I understand why the leaders want to lead in an authoritarian way. I don't understand why the people put up with it. And the people putting up with it, that's when you start thinking about the culture and the actual social dynamics and the way people have been raised and the values of Russian culture. Because it's, it's a mutual agreement. One can't exist without the other. You have an authoritarian regime, but an authoritarian regime can only live for so long if the people are not willing to buy into it to some degree. So I think it works both ways and both things need to be examined. I do think that there's an argument for it being embedded, this cynicism and social apathy being embedded in aspects of Russian culture. And I mean, it doesn't, you don't need to hear me speak about it. You can read a Russian novel and I think you'll get the hang of it pretty quickly of the kind of things that they reflect about and the kind of things that are spoken about in Russian literature, in Russian culture. And I think that it's, yeah, as I said, it really, it goes both ways. I think it's a, a match made in heaven in a way, like the political reasons as to why Russia leads towards authoritarian, also the cultural reasons that allow that to exist for so long. John Nash, the floor is yours. You need to unmute yourself, sir. Hola, Don. Thank you so much. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear be here with you. Uh, Thank you, Brookings. It's an amazing uh, topic. And since we're talking about people <clears throat> and the power of the people, uh, well, I don't want to disturb uh, too much, but uh, we don't have to forget the fact that we have the Minsk agreements. And in the Minsk agreements, all the parties, France, Germany, Ukraine, agreed that 10 million people living in Donbass, they want to be autonomous. And when 10 million out of 35 million, which is the whole country, says, hey, we want to be autonomous. And you say in 2015, yeah, we agree you're going to be autonomous. Now you come and kill everyone because that's what happened. They've killed all, all the dissidents, all those who could have realized the Minsk agreements. But yeah, we cannot. Okay, uh, I don't hear a question there. Uh, Kat, do you have thoughts on the Minsk agreement? I have thoughts on the Minsk agreement, but I don't really think that it's something that I want to address in this context because I, I think that on in, in the short run, what I'll say in the Minsk agreement is that no matter what 
some people may say about the will of the people in Donbass or Crimea, that conversation cannot happen when those territories were illegally invaded and occupied. If you want to talk about democratic will of the people, host a democratic referendum and have it be genuinely a will of the people instead of coming in as an aggressor, occupying it and inside trying to make that argument. I, I think that regardless of your stance on what the people wanted in those territories, what Russia did was illegal, was a violation of Ukraine's sovereignty and international law. And so it doesn't really feel right to talk about that in the aftermath of an invasion. Tell me, uh, the Wikipedia side of this, uh, are the are entries like on Donbass and Donetsk and Luhansk, are they, uh, are they, you don't discuss them in, in your, uh, in your piece, but are they ferociously contested on Wikipedia as well? That's actually something interesting that I'm going to be exploring in my kind of next, next round of Wikipedia dives, actually, because in this round, I focus more on cultural figures. But what I will say on that is that I do see a large contestion on the Russian Wikipedia pages. So like the wikipedia.ru site, um, they have entries in Russian about Donetsk, Luhansk, about the war in Ukraine. And that is very heavily contested because editors will come in and they're not allowed to call it a war. Everything's obviously named the special military operation. A lot of the entries about Donbass, about Crimea are very, very heavily moderated to the point where a Wikipedia editor even ended up getting arrested for trying to monitor the um, Russian Wikipedia pages and trying to depict the situation as accurate. So in Russia, the Russian from the Russian end, Russian Wikipedia is pretty heavily propagandized and to the point where Wikipedia editors are persecuted for editing the truth onto Wikipedia. But I think that this is something I'll dive deeper into as I do my next round. Benjamin, I think you, that you're muted. Oh, Ryan, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, please unmute yourself. Hey, guys, how's it going? I uh, just dropped in here. I was kind of following that uh, John account around. He's a Russian troll. Was uh, Just wanted to let everybody know. Well, that became kind of obvious once he started speaking. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, they're not very good at obscuring their motives anymore. It, it happens, um, but, uh, you know, you let them in every now and then they, 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 they say a little bit and then uh, you go back to your conversation. Absolutely. You're you guys have a good day. I just wanted to forewarn you. Uh, we try to let them have enough rope to hang themselves over at the Walter space as well. So good luck. Thank Slava Ukraini. Thank you very much. Ed C. Uh, the floor is yours. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate it. Uh, great pot. Great cast. Um, Thanks again for, for putting it together. Uh, my question for Katerina is, uh, when I was a student studying Russian slash Soviet history in the 80s, uh, we always came across this phrase, uh, you know, Kiev is the mother of all Russian cities. And I'm wondering if maybe you could give us some context on that and if that's something that is still prevalent in the Ukrainian kind of lexicon. And is that something that you grew up with or was, has that theory been put to bed? Um, I, I guess that's my question. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is, you know, as I, I was, as I was speaking about earlier about the historical memory of the Kievan Rus, that is what, that is the narrative from the Russian side, that Kiev is the mother of all Russian cities, which again, leads, leads back to the 
original point that Ben had earlier as to why this war over the culture and the cities whose matter so much, because when, when Kiev is the mother of all Russian cities, wouldn't that make sense for it to be a part of Russia? That's the narrative that they're propagating. And to answer your question, well, I, from the Ukrainian side, never grew up thinking that Kiev was the mother of all Russian cities. That was not something that was present in my lexicon and my narrative, but it is very much present in the Russian narrative. And I think that the, the the context for that is that after the collapse of the Kievan Rus, some of the Kievan Rus princes, um, they were dispersed and some of them were ended up going to Moscow and then the Muscovy Sardom was founded. And so there was this migration of some of the people involved in the Kievan Rus. And that's why they propagate that they are the descendants of the Kievan Rus. And But it's a very complicated argument what happened after the Kievan Rus disbanded. So... Um, you should look into that and because I can't give the whole history of that, but that's just the context of why they make the argument that they're the descendants of the Kievan Rus. And I think that they're not only that, but a lot of other Ukrainian cities are very heavily still in the Russian public consciousness as something that's theirs, including, as we mentioned earlier, Odessa, having, as it was a city founded by Catherine the Great, a lot of Russians still consider Odessa one of the greatest Russian cities, and Kiev the mother of all Russian cities. And I think it says a lot in general that a lot of the great Russian cities are Ukraine's biggest cities because Ukrainian cities are great. And I think that it also says a lot that the Russians are so proud of being able to call themselves descendants of these Ukrainian cities, because I think there's been a divergence between Russian cities and Ukrainian cities, especially since independence. And it's always ironic that so many Russians love claiming Kiev as this heritage, or Odessa especially as this heritage, and love going to vacation in Odessa and, and have their lives there. And yet, a lot of the things that make these great are not only distinctly Ukrainian things, but are the freedoms that we have to be able to have built them into something great. And I think that's also why so many Russians want to reoccupy these territories, because we've really built something amazing in Ukraine. And I, in my opinion, I don't think it compares to a lot of the state that a lot of Russian cities are in. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely something that's very much in the public dialogue in Russia about them being, you know, Kiev having been the mother, the birthplace of modern day Russia, which is why I think it's so important, especially in educational facilities, as you mentioned, you know, you grew up studying this as Kiev is the mother of all Russian cities. I think it's especially important for educational institutions to decolonize their curriculums so that when this is taught, you know, people in the West, Americans don't grow up with that narrative and don't grow up here, same thing. And especially, I think that the way that this narrative is propagated is a big reason that Russia feels this need to claim Kiev. And that's why I say again, that having a distinct and sovereign Ukrainian culture creates such an identity crisis for Russia. Because, you know, if their great Russian city is not Russian, what, what will they be? Yeah, I would also just say, you know, even if it is true that um, the modern Russian state or the, the is in some sense a descendant of the Kievan Rus, so what? I mean, that doesn't, it, it, like, w what follows from that other than a historical point, unless you're trying to make a, um, unless you're trying to make an imperial argument that, you know, because because it is where we hail from, it therefore necessarily is part of us. It's, it's a very, uh, you know, lots of, lots of, cultures have their origins in land masses that they are no longer part of. Um, I'm thinking, you know, one, one, uh, like modern Mongolia, 
um, you know, used to control all of what's now Russia. Uh, that doesn't make Russia Mongolian. Um, Beth Hill Skinner, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. Uh, Katerina, I'm enjoying your first person sharing. My grandparents were from Galicia, uh, Ternop, and I've been very attentive to everything since February 24th. It just breaks my heart. In the vein of the conversation you've been sharing just now, maybe you could help me grapple with the, the cognitive dissonance in what you're saying. Russians want that historic and cultural and emotional tie to the, the Cuban Rus narrative, Odessa is what Odessa is, and yet the cities, the historic sites are being bombed to smithereens. I, I can't make sense of that. Why? I'm going to ask an irrational question. Why wouldn't they be more careful with some of those historic sites? I know it's irrational, but it, it makes me crazy. Might you share a little bit about about how you see that? And I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think that's a great question and a question that we've been we've been discussing a lot as well. Irony in the fact that Russia wants to claim Ukraine as theirs and Russia wants to claim this culture as theirs, and yet they're actively destroying it. But I think that the reason that it's a target is because Ukrainian culture is different and it is not Russian. As much as they try and propagate that it is, and as much as they try and spew historical nonsense that it is, it simply is not. And you can see that for yourself and you can make the comparisons. And Ukrainian cultural sites are living proof that Ukraine has a sovereign culture. Ukrainian cultural sites are living proof of Ukraine's distinct history. Ukrainian museums that are dedicated to Ukrainian artists, that are dedicated to Ukrainian philosophers, like all of these cultural sites actually are a challenge to the Russian narrative that Russia and Ukraine are one. So while they're trying to claim this brotherly culture, these brotherly nations, they know that that's not the reality on the ground. And that's why they want to destroy cultural heritage sites that are evidence that their narrative is distorted. And I think it's plain for anyone that would visit Ukrainian cultural sites versus Russian cultural sites that there is a big difference. These are two different nations that they share different cultural traditions, different cultural ornaments, different cultural motifs. And so for them, that's that's just and that's why they're trying to actively destroy it in the process of co-opting it. All right, so we have six more minutes and a few additional questions. Uh, so I'm going to ask for quick questions and quick answers. Auntie Ruakonen, it is wonderful to see you in this different format. The floor is yours, sir. Thank you. So uh, Ukraine has a really strong uh, Cossack tradition, uh, that, and also the Cossacks were the first to uh, create a sort of precursor uh, of a Ukrainian independent state. Do you think that the uh, Ukrainian Cossack tra tra tradition is uh, uh, is not getting the attention it deserves as as a part of as a really big part of Ukrainian uh, cultural and uh, historic uh, tradition and and, and uh, narrative? Thank you. Thank you for the question. I would I would say that I don't think any part of Ukrainian history and culture is necessarily getting the attention it deserves, because I, I still think that there needs to be more conversation. But specifically about the Cossacks, yes, because I think that that is, again, a period in Ukraine's history where we had 
genuine autonomy and we had a Ukrainian sovereign statehood in whatever shape it was in the Hetmanate. And that I think is not recognized enough in Ukraine's historical path because there have been times where we were not colonies. There have been times where we had our own independent statehood. And I think that a lot of people gloss over that. And I think especially one of the underrated aspects of the cause of statehood in Ukraine is its democratic nature. A lot of people don't know that the Filipovic constitution, that the cause extracted was the first democratic constitution. And yes, it, pre it predated France's constitution. It established the separation of powers 28 years, if I'm remembering correctly, before Montesquieu wrote his famous Spirit of Laws. So I think that it's very underrated that Ukraine's democratic and sovereign tradition stems so far back and how ingrained it is in our history and culture. I've tried to keep it brief for, for Ben's sake. Appreciate it. Claudia, you get the last question today. Okay, thank you. No pressure. Um, thanks so much for talking. I really was interested in what you were talking about earlier about borscht. And I don't know if you have enough time to go more into the food ways about it, but I'd love if you had anywhere you could point me to, or if you could just talk a little bit more about the way that, that Russia sees itself as a cuisine, you know, given that it's in, that it is now, and then also has historically been an empire with so many different peoples. Talk a little bit about that. Is that specific enough? Yeah. Yeah. It's very specific. I, I'm not going to go into the history of borscht because that um, it, it's very complex. I will point you to, however, not to do a little self-plug, but next week I'm actually going to be on a panel and we will be speaking about borscht. So this is um, going to be good if you want to learn specifically about Ukrainian food. So I'll post that on my Twitter next week. But I think that um, that's exactly the point about, you know, Russian Russians being accustomed to being an imperial power and therefore being accustomed to be able to claim ownership over any of the culture that existed in its colonies, including the food, including the art, including the music. When you when you are used to controlling these territories, used to kind of having your pick and saying, oh, I like that food. We're going to consume it in our empire. It's going to be ours now. And so the battle over borscht is very interesting and nuanced, and I'll talk about it next week, but it is another example of the semantics of this cultural war and why it's so important for Ukraine to have ownership of that, to have a distinction there so that when people go out in a restaurant and they say they can eat Ukrainian food, that is one more way for them to interact with Ukraine and understand Ukraine and know what it is, Ukraine alive. We are going to leave it there. Kat Bukatsky, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was great. And a note to you all, please subscribe to the Live from Ukraine podcast feed, even if you prefer to listen to it on Twitter spaces. This is how we get the word out to lots of people. Please uh, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will be back on Monday. Thank you all. Live from Ukraine is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Uh, you know, the engineering, I'm doing it myself because it's Twitter spaces, but it is produced and edited by folks at Goat Rodeo. Thanks for listening.